It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. And Stephen... Do we have to talk about Europe? Should we talk about Europe first? Uh, are we not talking about Europe later on in the podcast with our super secret special guest? That will probably be revealed to people when they've clicked on the link. Yes, okay, that's a good point. Um, we will keep people waiting for the excitement that is Europe to come. Let's um, let's do leadership first of all. So who knows what will have happened by uh, the time that you've listened to this, but we've had an, an extraordinary day in the office today. Um I mean, the, the Tory party really do show Labour how to backstab, don't they? Um, we had this extraordinary situation where nominations are due to close at 12. Uh, Boris Johnson had got a very nice hotel venue booked for his campaign launch. Then uh, Michael Gove came out uh, without, we think now, even texting Boris first to let him know, to say that actually he thought about it and Johnson was a rubbish leader. He could do much better and he would be running. I mean, I think this is very last minute because he didn't... He, um, Theresa May had got a lovely library set uh, where, uh, yeah. and she announced her policies and took questions from journalists. That was all scheduled very thoroughly. Um, Boris Johnson had again booked this hotel, but Michael Gove hasn't done a launch event, indicating that really was a last-minute decision. Yes, um, and I think... Well, the interesting thing is, clearly, in some, some ways it it wasn't because the, the MPs who were backing Boris Johnson, who you looked at and went, Liz Truss? Boris? Really? Almost, you know, seconds after he announced, were like, uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm... About I'm, 40 of them immediately yeah, uh, went. So there clearly was some ringing round, and you assume he wouldn't do it if he didn't think he had a, a shot to get in the top two. I mean, as, as one uh, minister who is now backing Theresa May, actually, uh, said to me a while ago, um, you know, it, it's like getting a ticket to the lottery, and once you're in the top two, it's, you know, it, no, one, no one knows who will, who will win... That's not how the lottery that, that works of, at all. It is weird how this is the problem with uh, the fact that no journalist is up from home. Sometimes you realise something which sounded profound to you. Yeah, is, is total balls. actually just, so just an analogy which doesn't work. So I'm just going to kind of retract. Yeah. Retract. Yeah. Let's go through the candidates then. Okay, so Michael Gove will be familiar to our uh, listeners from his time as a kind of Bolshevik in the Department of Education, deciding he wanted to fight the Blob, also known as teachers and the teaching unions. Uh, Which, looking back, actually should have been... I mean, I'm not saying that I was... uh, Are you going to endorse Michael Gove? Because that is not going to go down well. No, no, I mean, the thing is, there are two perspectives on Michael Gove, right? There's the perspective of me as someone who has to live in this country. uh, And I'm troubled by the fact that he has been a fairly dysfunctional presence at 
education and justice in terms of how he actually runs the department so there are big question marks about his ability to actually run downing street before you get into any policy questions there is literally you know the lights turning on Mm -hmm. and we forget that so yeah people talk about him being a great reformer in education in 2010 academies had a cross-party support b more importantly people in the country liked them in 20 in 2016 Neither of those things are true. It's the very public true. doesn't like them, and they don't have cross-party support. So every time the wow, apparently it is now an, uh, a podcastly tradition, and I slag off the spectator every week. But don't every... do it, don't do it, because people. Are, I thought what happened on the podcast stayed on the podcast, but then someone copied Fraser Nelson into a tweet, and I thought the jigs up. They're going to hear it. They're going to find out. Yeah, okay, you're not allowed to actually tweet Fraser Nelson when we criticise the spectator. That's not cool, guys. Um, but. Yeah, whenever they go on about what a great reformer he is, he literally took a reform that was already going on, which was improving education standards, which had cross-party support, turned it into one which, to be honest, is no longer improving education standards because of the changes the Conservatives have made to it, has wrecked the DfE's ability to run itself as a department, and... And people and politicians dislike. I mean, that is not success. But isn't he a great... I mean, he's a great campaigner in the sense that he's a great polarizer, right? So in terms of firing up a base, he's brilliant because he gives everybody a very sharply defined enemy that, you know, I I don't think he's a great moderate figure, a great reacher out. But if you wanted to be, you know, he's got Govites in the way that there are not Mayites. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. So the other perspective that I come with is as, um, you know, from a corporate self-interest perspective... If Boris Johnson, sorry, if Michael Gove, well, it has been a long day, become, becomes Prime Minister, that will be brilliant news for the new statesman because we will have a recognisable hate figure that we can put on the cover and then I can use to illustrate every story about the Conservative Party I write on the website. Do you know for, what I think is another problem, though? At least four years. Is <laughs> that Dominic Cummings, who was one of the architects of Vote Leave, um, formerly of No to AV and of the North East uh, referendum campaign, who was, I went and watched his performance in front of the Treasury Select Committee where Andrew Tyron, who's not one of, you know, nature's ragers, looked like he was going to, he could have cheerfully reached across the desk and throttled him. Um, he is presumably going to be involved in this campaign in one way or another, or certainly in a, in a Gove premiership, it'd be very hard to see how he wouldn't be involved. Although he claimed on Twitter that he was not getting involved in any leadership bits. I think, you know, uh, he was an enormously... I'm old enough to remember when he wasn't getting involved in Vote Leave. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, and when he wasn't really an outrider for Michael Gove when he was sort of having a good slag off of Cameron on Twitter saying he was a hollow man. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, from my point of view, that, that feels like somebody who I feel has been a... So actually, I don't think it's overstating it to say a poisonous uh, influence mm. on British politics in the last three months. Somebody who signed off leaflets that looked as though they were official NHS leaflets for vote leave, somebody who put a lie on the side of a bus about money that we were going to get from the NHS, somebody who authorised a leaflet that implied that Iraq and Syria were joining the European Union, um, is now going to be presumably bringing that fact-free, emotion-led, manipulative style of politics to to a leadership campaign in the Tory party. I mean, I think... So the, the one the one thing is, is dispiritingly, the fact that that approach has... Is now, has now got a three for three three um, win record. I mean, I think that is going to be the shape of every campaign from the political right in this country for the considerable future, or at least until the left finds a way of defeating it. 
and depressingly i can't yeah what well, what is that i yeah. mean you know populism is 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 popular that's yeah and also it's like it's the, the don't think of an elephant campaign isn't it every time you say oh actually turkey isn't going to join the eu isn't gonna join the people are like what did you say something about turkey and the eu yeah it, it's it's a big problem anyway so um, let's some because we we need to rather than slag off michael gove which you know is 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 fun for all the family but let's let's quickly talk about those other candidates then just for people who may not be so familiar with some of the other people on the ticket uh, most people will not be familiar with theresa may who i think is an interesting one for for left-wingers about how you might feel about theresa may because she has done things that i think are Ill- illiberal uh, and her p- policies on immigration certainly are very stridently right wing. However, she has. I must say, I have enjoyed all of the visa weddings I have gone gone to uh, when couples, yeah, lots, all of whom are very much in love, but many of whom would have preferred to get married uh, with perhaps more expense than they were able to afford at that time in their lives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, Theresa May is is responsible for a lot of great nights I've I've had over the last five years. So I've got to thank her. For well, that's that. lovely. I know it's really shallow, but I really like her dress sense. I'm not allowed to say that. I like it a lot more than I like. Michael Gove, Stephen Crabbe's dress sense because that is just a, a man in a suit. I also, the, the one thing you have to say is she has consistently been a great voice against stop and search and the behaviour of the police federation and the various police forces in the United Kingdom. So that is a... She was very strong in Hillsborough as well. I think this is the thing, is that she has not been afraid to confront... Yeah, as you say, malpractice within within the police, which for a home secretary, particularly for a Tory home secretary, is is not classically something that one would expect. I mean, in some ways, it is a bit like being asked which communicable diseases uh, I would like to like to be infected with. And but, you're like, oh, chlamydia, because it's bad, but I feel like it responds to antibiotics. Syphilis yeah. is a lot more... Yeah, the thing is, I, I think that she, that she probably is the chlamydia if this is the analogy we've decided to run with, um, of of the candidates. Not least because the test, the test that I keep coming back to, because the thing which, I mean, so the political things which keep me awake at night are, one, climate change, obviously, and two, if we had another bout of financial disaster similar to what we had 2007 to eight, when you basically have to, where the one good thing you can say about George W. Bush's presidency is he decided to throw out all of the ideology and just to rescue large financial institutions. Michael Gove would not do that. He would, you know, he'd he'd deliver a stirring speech about mercantilism and Britain's island history and then let a bank fail. Boris Johnson's vanity would not allow him to... He'd he'd wait for it to be on Sunday night so he could put it in his Telegram column. I'll uh, I'll bail out, you know, Lehman Brothers. We'll have to wait until Sunday night. Whereas, yeah, I, I, yeah, kind of, I, I, I do at least... She would be Trust unpopular, Theresa won't May won't to go, actually. Yeah, so, I mean, there was a moment in 2007, I think, when the head of RBS phoned Alice Darling and went, I'm really sorry, Chancellor. I know we said we thought we had enough money to get to the end of the month thanks to the first injection, but actually we don't. And there was a 24-hour period when we did come perilously close to the end of money i know some of our listeners think the end of money would be a prelude to a more left-wing uh scenario i have never bought that thesis i think it would have been the prelude to a much more right-wing scenario uh and so yeah for me i think it probably does have to be theresa may although the other candidate are... you, i was gonna say but are you gonna come out as a secret liam fox backer at oh this god i'd forgotten the, i'd forgotten liam fox. Know, there's always one you forget so liam fox or as i think john ellidge insists on calling us disgraced former cabinet minister liam fox yeah. 
is best memorable for being extremely socially conservative and having taken his best man on trips with him. Yeah, I think the thing you've got to kind of see as is there are basically two conservative leadership contests. There's the Go V May one, which is basically a contest to become leader of the Conservative Party. And then there's what you might see as the kind of third place playoff, the race for position between Stephen Crabb, Andrea Leadsom, and Liam Fox. Liam Fox is obviously, uh, you know, disgraced former cabinet minister, sacked for reasons which were slightly strange because it's one of those things where I think it's one of those things if he'd been sleeping with this guy who was not being paid by the taxpayer but was going on government junkets. I think everyone would have understood it, but it's well, it would have been like when David Law said, "Look, I didn't want to say that I was sharing a mortgage with someone because I didn't want everyone to know it was my partner." Yeah, and everyone kind of went, "Oh, okay, so you have to go away and for a bit." But actually, I can we understand. kind of understand this. But Whereas, uh, you know, but I think for the sake of our libel lawyers, we probably should clarify that there is no suggestion whatsoever that anything sexual was happening between Liam Fox and Adam Werity. Yeah, which I think kind of in some ways made it more surreal because I still haven't really worked out what was going on there. I know, like I've uh, got friends who I really like, but if I were a government minister i can't think i would take any of them to like sri lanka with me indeed um but he's basically running in order to be able to come back as a cabinet minister because uh you know he will at some point he hopes be able to definitively uh help or hinder someone by lending them his his support base and it's a show of strength effectively Andrea Leadsom well, has... I, I was going to say, I, I clashed with Andrea Leadsom several times on Tuesday's Women's Hour, which if, if you're a fan of podcasts, you can probably go and find that on podcasts as well. She was the only Leave supporter in a, in a discussion, which was me, Alice Thompson of the time, Seema Malhotra and Sarah Wollaston. So I think she was slightly outnumbered. I interrupted her at one point because she said, the fundamentals of our economy are sound. We're the fifth biggest economy in the world. And I said, I think you're actually we're now the sixth biggest economy in the world. Um, so we were all being hateful about Boris Johnson. Um, but yeah, I she was was very defensive for someone who'd won i think that was a really that was the thing that kind of came across it was like but you guys your side won you know yeah. you know this is okay so yeah you can't keep continue to play the underdog when you've just achieved a you know massive a million vote historic victory yeah but so she's effectively running again for a, a serious position um and then stephen crabb is running um kind of to establish himself as the preeminent nice one as it were he wants to be kind of presumably david cameron in 2005 right he wants to be the kind of clean skin candidate i mean so that's that's the hope that is his best i'd say the the best case scenario for stephen crabb is that he is the one who can say i'm not a figure from the past Weirdly, there is a fairly large caucus within the Conservative Party that really doesn't want to talk about Europe non-stop for the next... I'm not saying that that is like... Yeah, I can only report the crazy things that people say to me. The fact that they are crazy doesn't change the fact that that is what... There is a caucus of Conservative MPs out there who hope that they can... Yeah, obviously they understand it will be a, a big thing, but they don't want more civil wars over guys we've had 30 years maybe we could just put this you know when we finally left maybe we could just put this to bed yeah i mean you you joked you can see the attraction um even if it doesn't actually make my question on stephen crabb is he voted against gay marriage uh he accepted funding for his office from a gay cure group Mm -hmm. um is that issue is the issue of gay marriage now so done and dusted we've got it it's just it's banked that that will not be a big feature of the campaign it's a it's a really interesting 
question. My instinct, it's not. Um, I think he will have to come up with some kind of explanation. I mean, this is also someone who's too late for him to go on Pride. Unfortunately, he could have put a pair of hot pants on and been out last weekend, but um, no, he's missed his chance. He's also backed um, conversion therapy in the past, so there are. So there are barriers, to put it mildly, between between him and kind of carving out that niche as the nice one. The interesting thing is one of his closest political allies and friends is Ruth Davison, who obviously is getting, is getting married very soon. And my instinct is, as crass as this sounds, they will do the some of my best political friends are. Do you think he'll Yay. go to the wedding and just be like one of those photo ops where he's just there kind of going like, hey, hey guys. Yeah, I mean, I think... Because the interesting thing is, I mean, so Nikki Morgan, of course, voted against uh, equal marriage, but she was able to kind of well, she tacked back on that very herself. quickly when she became women and equalities minister and yeah. said, you know, I've, I've, but then I guess that she, I, she did have the advantage though that oh, I'm not defending this because I don't think it's okay. You know, there are plenty of Labour MPs who voted for civil partnerships with immensely socially conservative electorates. Sadiq Khan, of course, had death threats for uh, for his incredibly pro equality uh, voting record. But with Nikki Morgan, it was very much since she's in a marginal where the swing demographic in that bit of Loughborough is very much uh, third-generation socially conservative immigrants who don't trust the Conservative Party on some some issues, but they've come into affluence, they've moved out of Leicester, um, and so that, for her, was why it felt politically... Plus, she is quite Christian, isn't she? Yeah, she's quite... Stephen Crabb Stephen Crabb is also one of that kind of circle of godders um, in the... uh, Because, I mean... At some point, I will do a, a boring long read about God and the parliamentary parties. I like the promise of a boring long read. You yeah. don't want to overshoot and accidentally make it yeah, interesting. If you've got a lower expectations. Um, but it is really interesting, I mean, partly because... Well, I think the Ian yeah. Duncan Smith kind of caucus as well in the in the party is, is very heavily influenced yeah. by faith. And, and in the press as well. A lot of his uh, biggest supporters in, in, in the press uh, and his cheerleaders in the kind of columnist class are kind of godders although they like to keep going i obviously don't have a problem with those. some of my best mothers are fathers are, are uh, of course uh, church, church clergy yeah, yeah i know so, that's the thing so we've, we've neatly leaped out of being accused of being anti-religious there well that's enough that's enough tories let's quickly glance at labor although we are uh, in danger of again being outdated on this angela eagle who was supposed to launch uh, her counter leadership bill at 3pm has now delayed that uh, I think in the hope that Jeremy Corbyn would shuffle off quietly into the night himself. He uh, issued another statement this afternoon saying he is not shuffling off. Um, he'd already kind of got... I have to say, if he, you know, if you think if he were going to stand down, he would have not put himself through the horror that was Labour's anti-Semitism inquiry announcement. I mean, Anisha Kalian went along to that and said it was an incredibly unpleasant atmosphere. Um, a Jewish Labour MP ended up leaving after being shouted at. Uh, it wasn't... It was not hands around the rainbow bridge over troubled water type stuff at all. The slightly bleak thing at the moment is it is very difficult to see a positive outcome because when you are, as the Labour Party is, effectively two parties bound together by first past the post, what keeps you together is goodwill, right? You, You sort of have to have a sense of... And the problem is Labour has never been a particularly... Democratic Party, don't forget it had its undemocratic electoral college for a very long time. It has never been, and this is kind of the two ends of the problem, there is neither respect for the 40% of 
people who did not vote for Jeremy Corbyn or the, however many it is who have doubts now or the MPs who didn't, but there also is not respect for the democratic mandate he got in a fair election. It's very difficult to continue on uh, as one entity, whatever happens. My instinct is that there are sort of two scenarios. Either he will crush whoever he faces in the ballot, although my impression from talking to members is that his numbers are shakier than they perhaps were, but I don't think there is a candidate available who has the qualities necessary to defeat him. At that point, you would imagine the uh, the the kind of right and uh, centre-left of the party would split off and form some kind of new party. Um, I just don't and... understand how he can go on without... I mean, you've seen the list as well um, of all the shadow cabinet positions and, you know, the fact that they've had two education secretaries, shadow education yeah. secretaries, within 48 hours. I mean, that's that's difficult. That won't be such an issue over the summer when Parliament's in, in recess. But when the Tories have got a new leader in September, that becomes incredibly difficult to I mean, sustain. The, the thing is, is, put bluntly, he cannot run an opposition with though that few number of supporters. There are people on the loyalist side talking about ways they could potentially sew things back together after a leadership election, but that feels optimistic. On the other hand, the rebels' best hope is that they can... Uh, they can secure a ruling that he would need to collect 50 nominations like the challenger would, at which point he would be unable to do so. And I mean, I can see the point of, if you are um, loyal to Corbyn, of thinking, well, actually, we know we have to hang on because this is you know, what we've been elected to do by our members. Mm. This is what, what they wanted from us. They wanted renationalisation. You know, they wanted anti-austerity. These are all the things they wanted. And also in the sure and certain knowledge that things, particularly now they've become so acrimonious, a new leader from the soft left would, cr- would crush, would crush that faction, would have to crush that faction in the way that Blair... Oh, you know, or during the eighties, that militant was crushed. In the, the, it would have to be, it, it, as you say, that you can't cohabit like that anymore, can you? Yeah, I mean, I think the big difference is that, then, of course, militant was an organised party within a party which had a standing brief to destroy the Labour Party yeah. in a in a bid to accelerate the. Um, the Downfall condition. of capitalism yeah. and the bringing in of socialist utopia. Yeah, so it, so it's it's slightly different. England, there could never have been cohabitation in that situation. But crucially, the trust the trust is gone, and it's hard to see how they... But there's no way that Angela Eagle, should she stand again, should she win, is going to reach out a massive olive branch. She's going to keep John McDonnell in her shadow cabinet. I just think that that time is now kind of slightly past. Really. Yeah, I think the moment which we may look back as decisive in the last days of the Labour Party... So what kind of happened is there was one, well, there were two sets of organised coups. There was the no-confidence motion organised by effectively Blairites who were expecting to retire at the next election anyway. There was the Brownite coup from within the cabinet, which kind of kicked off with Hillary Benn and was being coordinated by Tom Watson. But I think the moment at which survive, yeah, in which a an amicable outcome became impossible was the bit in which the soft left decided, oh, we've tried, but it's not going to work. Because I think there there were politicians who were probably capable you of mean winning. And we've tried working with Corbyn, the sort yeah. of Chris Bryant make it work faction. Yeah, kind of. So, but I think say like, yeah, if Lisa Nandy had stayed in the was still in the shadow cabinet, 
then you could see a situation in which she combines a lot of the economics, she doesn't have the foreign policy, because I think basically the unity position on Labour and foreign policy is basically not to have one. Uh, there are lots of people who are very bruised by the disastrous war in Iraq. There are other people who are very bruised by the disastrous failure of the West to um, find a peaceful solution to uh, the civil war in Syria. And so basically the unity position is to be someone who's not that interested in foreign policy and doesn't really do abroad. Um, and then there are lots of politicians who could have done that the problem is, is what happened when the soft left quit is that sort of, it's, I think it's difficult now for There's someone no like There's no Lisa bridging Nan position, Nandy or, yeah. or, or Owen Smith or Kate Green to have that role. Um, and I think they could have, they could have done so and that could have been a healing mechanism. So yeah, it's not great. Well, there we go. That's, uh, that's politics right now. Um, you know, by tomorrow, dragons will rule the earth. So all of this will be out of date. But for the moment, uh, let's say goodbye. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Right, and now we are joined by our super secret special guest, our regular columnist and contributing editor. That's the one. Uh, Laurie Penny, uh, to discuss... Brexit. To, it's Brexit, Brexit Stephen. Don't, our... don't leave them in suspense. It might be something more exciting. Brexit. Look, if we had all been as passionate about Europe and as excited about it beforehand, then we would still have left, but you would be as upset as <laughs> I am. <laughs> Seeing as everyone else is already pretty upset, I really don't recommend being as invested as I had become by the end of it all. Okay, so what um, we've done is we had a uh, put a call out for a Q&A. So this is kind of going to work like our, a, a very extended You Ask Us. And because I've got a lot of questions, mm-hmm. I'm going to... I'm not looking at you, Laurie, here, really, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to need very short answers. Okay. Short answers. I can do that. You can do that. You, yeah. I live the dream. Okay, Stephen, I'm going to start with you. What is Schultz slash Juncker's endgame with talks with Sturgeon? So Martin Schultz and Jean-Claude Juncker have been talking to Nicola Sturgeon about Scotland possibly having a different relationship to Westminster with the EU. So it's twofold. Firstly, the SNP has for a very long time taken its diplomatic relationship with Europe very, very seriously. They have what... It's not called an embassy, but effectively their MEPs have set up something which if you didn't know, then if you'd landed from another planet, you'd go, like, oh, this is a Scottish embassy, right? They've, they've put in the work that basically because Cameron has never been a particularly serious European, you basically since 2007, there hasn't been that level of effort from the British government into maintaining those relationships. So it's partly about doing a favour to some mates, but it's also about trying to bounce Britain into working out when it's actually going to start thinking about leaving so that they can stop having their market uncertainty and get back to their problems as opposed to us instrumentalizing our whatever. Well, let's, let's pick that up briefly. Apart from my, my Laurie and my eyebrows went up, I think, because we're like, how would aliens know what an embassy was? But anyway, let's put that aside. So Article 50 has become the subject of much debate. This is by... And it's actually, isn't it an amendment to the Maastricht Treaty rather than being part of the Treaty of Rome? Or the, the Lisbon Treaty? Lisbon Treaty. Lisbon Treaty. Mm. Anyway, so this is the um, this is the formal statement of giving notice that, like, bye lads, see you later, thanks for all the fish. Uh, and Cameron said on Friday morning that he wasn't going to do it immediately, having previously said that he would, really. That was a signal he was giving out. He would leave it to the new Prime Minister to do. 
The problem is, right, that if we trigger it, we lose a lot of our negotiating power. It starts a two-year countdown to us leaving. So the theory is that they want to sew up something beforehand, particularly as, as I see it, the last noises that were coming out of Brussels were saying, you will, as soon as you trigger that, you will try and negotiate for your deal. But in the meantime, you will only get what's called the WTO option, the World Trade mm-hmm. Organization option, which is a very harsh, restrictive, high-tariff, difficult bargain to strike. So yeah. that's Article 50. Laurie. I'm not going to ask you about UK agriculture. I want to ask you about Regrexit. Do you think that it is a good policy for Labour to pursue a second referendum to try and say people were, were lied to, people are unhappy with this result? Well, the question really seems to boil down to whether or not we want riots now or riots later. I mean, it, it looks like it might be both. We might get the two-for-one deal. Um, but uh, it's a really, really tough question because on the one hand, yes, a lot of people are regretting their vote. No, we have no way of telling quite how many without another referendum. Um, but on the other hand, uh, despite the catastrophe that's come as a result of this referendum already, um, ignoring it and pushing it through, uh, sorry, pushing against it in Parliament would be a real poke in the eye to any semblance or pretense at democracy we still have. And a lot of people would feel like they'd been ignored, which they had. And there would be it would open a Pandora's box of resentment and rage among the population of Britain if that hasn't been opened already. But there uh, would, would be that butterfly that was on the spectator cover at the end that would just that would float up at the at the end. Of, yeah. of of possibly the pound picking back up and us being able to all run away to Berlin legally. Well, I want to ask you about this, because I think it's probably fair to say, on a spectrum of of leftiness, there's Stephen, as we all know, is a Blair. I know know you're not not. a Blair, right? (laughs) I'm taunting you. There's no no such thing as a Blair, right? Like, there's no such thing as as ghosts um, (laughs) anymore. And then probably I'm, now I guess I'm soft left. I guess I see myself very much as the Angela Eagle of the NS office. Um, And then you're you're kind of, you're more kind of, I think you're more... um, up for kind of Corbynism than we are. But where were you on the European Union? Oh, I was pro-Remain, absolutely. Be- just because um, it was the best of two not necessarily great options. And I wasn't taken in for a minute by um, the kind of fantasy that some people on the left had, which was, oh, you know, if we get out of the EU now, we're, we're going to be able to renationalise everything and a people's revolution will take place. Um, this seems to be, and I hate to go into intra-left squabbles, but this seems go to on, okay, it seems to be a very brochalist view, which is this whole idea of well, we need things to get a lot worse before they'll get better. We need you know the total collapse of British society, and then comrades, then we will have our people's revolution. Unfortunately, that recipe includes a lot of people hurting, a lot of people dying, and it's not something. I'm ever going to sign up for. And in the meantime, that total collapse of society necessarily includes people, usually women, doing a lot of fill-in work to keep everybody held together for as long as they can. And that's already what we're seeing. Yeah, I have to say, what um, I was just talking to um, Jeremy Bowen, who's currently in Iraq, who said, uh, you know, because he's writing something for, the, for us soon. And he was saying, you know, talking about a catastrophe, well, I'm just, I'm in Fallujah where there's dead bodies all over mm-hmm. the place. And I was thinking back to... It's one in one of those weird things where something doesn't quite feel that it happened for me. When the Belgian terror attacks happened, I was in Uganda. Mm. And I kind of thought, actually, I don't know if, if people really know what they're asking for when they say, you know, this is going to be great. Like, we, you know, we need to smash everything down so we yep. can build it back up again. Actually, living in a country with a with a, where a, with a non-functioning state is really not that yeah. much fun, <laughs> guys. And also, I mean, if, this, if step one of your plan for a more left-wing society is then Michael Gove becomes prime minister... <laughs> 
I mean, unless step two is really, really metal, then I'm yeah. just not. That is not. It, it's a, I, also it's a really good observation because I think about it and I think, yeah, I don't know a single female Lexiter. It is just a. It is also like a, a certain type of book. It's just like, yeah, but I reckon in a riot you could probably survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's quite a middle class view. I don't mm. know. I'll get in trouble for saying that, but I feel. And the same way that I felt a lot of the Leave side said, you know, we don't mind this big economic shock because we'll have sovereignty. And it's like a big economic shock for you is your, you know, two million pound house is, is worth 1.9 million for a bit, right? Yeah. And you don't have a mortgage to pay off. It's not, it, I don't like ever this argument, you've just got to make things really bad for people because in the long term you'll get something better out of it. Because the better out of it often doesn't turn up. And when it does, when things get better, they tend to get better much faster for the people at the top again, yes. right? It, I think it's nonsense and it's dangerous nonsense. And uh, one of the things about being on the hard left or the far left is you have to you know grow up after a few years and understand that if you're you know if if your proposal for a future society or your roadmap includes total social destruction it's maybe worth thinking it through a bit more you know there's uh, I, I am for a road to change which includes Fewer people dying. But just think possibly. how many telly bookings you could have got out of this, Laurie. <laughs> well, I'm that... on the NS podcast now. <laughs> no, well, it's the media it's appearance. All they're all dying to make. But seriously, <laughs> they, I mean, this is one of the things I think is absolutely fascinating is that the, the broadcasters had a real problem with trying to get enough women on because there yep. were very few women involved in the Leave campaign. And actually, the way that they ended up, because they wanted to put women on TV, they ended up making it look like there were more women involved in it than there, mm-hmm. there were. I think the number of ethnic minorities that were involved in the entire campaign was, was pitiful, frankly. Like, it just it did feel like a very, a, a, yep. a very exclusionary mm-hmm. conversation. Stephen... Is the call by the Greens, Liberals, to create a pro-EU alliance with the SNP credible? And how much will it rely on the remains of Labour? Oh, it's a uh, pun, but also a sad, no. a sad pun. I, I mean, so I think I'm. I, I know I said I'd do short answers, <laughs> and I'm going to keep this as short as possible. So I think the thing is, I see the temptation of it, right, in that it allows the Labour Party, whatever Labour Party emerges from their meltdown. Uh, to basically maximise the bit of the electorate which is most... It allows it to build out from its its current core um, ethnic minorities, young graduates, um, in, in middle-class electorate to, uh, intellectuals who are concerned about poverty, and it potentially gives a bridge between that group of people and people who do not necessarily agree with the redistributive stuff but are angry about the EU. The, the difficulty is... is if it doesn't work, it is a very high-stakes gamble because if it doesn't work, Labour's turned around to the other half of its traditional core and gone, yeah, we don't care about how you just voted. It's a bit like... But what does it? What form does it yeah. take? This is the question, I think, yeah. is that, okay, so you've got a, a progressive alliance that all agrees on one issue, but realistically, in order to get the numbers, you don't just need Greens and Lib Dems, you need the SNP as well. Yeah. And at that point, what happens the first time that you have a bill that is disadvantageous to Scotland at the expense of England, that's not going to hold together. I just don't see how you can create anything like a working block. But the difficulty is, and the, the Brexit vote has, exactly as Laurie said, put us in this decision, where it's at this, this juncture where the decisions are riots now, riots later. But yeah, because basically, either you're turning around to 17 million people and going, sorry, wrong answer, or you're going to make a lot of people a lot poorer. Mm-hmm. Both of both of which are fairly good starting points to far right reaction. Like 
the same thing yeah, with yeah. the immigration thing, right? Yeah. Either you're going to say we're going to keep free movement and then a lot of people say, well, that's not what I voted for. Or you're going to really crack down on immigration. You're going to have to have that accompanied by a lot of rhetoric about how, you know, you become really cracking down on immigrants. Plus, again, we're making people poorer and there will still be there will still be black and brown people in the country for people to blame if that's what they, you know, yeah. if that's what they've been if that's who they've been told to blame. Oh, right, okay. Uh, here's one for you, Laurie. I'm going to hold you responsible as a representative of the, all the UK media. Why do all UK media, including the supposed left-leaning ones, hate Jeremy Corbyn? Well, I'm not sure everyone hates Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the socialist worker loves him. Um, Morningstar, pretty Morning Morningstar King. loves him. Um, many blogs love him, the canary. Um, but I'm not sure. There does seem to have been, from the start, a real push against Corbyn. I mean, I think, obviously... Um, the the Vice documentary which I saw and um, was quite impressed by the levelness of despite uh, the fact that they caught um, somebody on camera saying mean things about George which I was upset about. It's okay, he's George can handle himself. George can handle himself. We've, we've previously covered this. <laughs> um, I think I, I do agree with the assessment that there seems to have been a campaign against Corbyn from the start, just an unwillingness to accept that this is what um, the Labour electorate had decided. Um, I have no idea why he's so unpopular with the press. Uh, maybe because he demonstrates that fact. Maybe he's he's not playing the game as well as other people. This is the, the thing the I find interesting, though, is that why would the press love him when he hates the press, right? If you're the Daily Mail or the, the Telegraph, he's not giving you anything. He doesn't want to give you anything. He hates you. He thinks you're the enemy. I just don't know why you would think that that would then not be reciprocated in a way. Um, I think it's been a really interesting question for people in, in left-wing media. I mean, what we have tried to do is give him a fair hearing mm-hmm. whilst acknowledging he wasn't the candidate that we would have, have chosen or backed. I think the funny thing about Vice is, I think that having talked to people, I know you've talked to people who've said the same thing, actually that Vice documentary did the most to undermine support mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for him among people that are any... Of, of people who are kind of Corbyn regretters and, and they're not by all means, yeah, yeah. you know, a, a lot... That's not a majority view among people who voted for him, but there are definitely a core people who've said that. What they what they say to me is it's about competence. Actually, they still yeah. really agree with him. They still want a leader who can do that. They just have lost faith in his ability to beat that person. And the Vice documentary was what did that. And I also think... Because I think the thing is, is so one MP has a good phrase, you know, journalism is a manufacturing industry, you just need to open a factory. And there are lots of people who I'm not going to name because I'm worried some of them might, you know, track me down. But there are lots of journalists who we can see effectively just repeat what they're told by by Mm -hmm. random politicians. And they haven't even put the energy into turning those people. Um, A good, I was going to say source by, a good friend of mine on the left of the party, but who's younger than this current generation Mm -hmm. that's in charge, thinks and part of the problem is that if you came into politics, Corbyn was elected in the worst year for the left of the Labour Party, Mm -hmm. when they started to retreat. He thinks they just expect to lose, which very rapidly becomes self-fulfilling. They don't have that confidence than some of the 2015 intake who came in in a year which was actually very good for the Labour left in terms of its representation in Parliament, and then they won a leadership election in a in a landslide. And, you know, people like Clive Lewis, Cat Smith, Lou Hay, they are much more up for talking to the media and playing game, partly because... From their experience, they're on a run of form where they kept winning. The problem is, I think, yeah, lots of people around Corbyn have just kind of got used to being defeated. But I also think that they... they, I I don't know if this is a particular... Maybe a mirror image thing happens on the right and I just don't know about it. But they feel... (laughs) 
much more let down when they don't feel they're getting the support that they feel they deserve from the left-wing media. I think it's really interesting when you talk to people around them and they are much more worried about what The Guardian, the BBC, the New Statesman are saying than they are about The Sun and the Daily Mail, which, let's, yeah. not to be rude about us and The Guardian, but, you know, we are um, connoisseurs' publications, shall we put it like that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's that's a kind of fascinating one. Okay, enough Well, it of... hurts more on that. It hurts more when your own side are gunning for you. If um, If the right or whoever you see as your enemy is 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 giving you a pasting you expect that but then if your own side is also not shoring you up I mean, you see this on like an intimate personal level I was as well. say, this is it like the story of all more. of your and my twitter beef yes for, exactly for many years exactly. That, you know you, you feel you have to answer to people on your own side in a way yeah. that you don't if somebody's kind of making crude sexist joke well that's yeah. just they're not you know that's not my people uh steven do you think andrea ledsom has a chance of being prime minister ahead of the better known and more experienced may and gove um, I'm worried it's going to be hospital. No, uh, it, I just don't think she's got the numbers um, to get into that final two. I also think the problem with Boris's exit is there going to be a lot of people who wanted a sure a, a meal ticket to the top, and they will fall behind one of the the big two, and that makes it much harder for any of the newbies to break through. And to be honest, to be a newbie. You don't have to have gone to Eton to become Conservative leader. But you do have to have gone to Eton to become Conservative leader if you're not already a big name. Mm. Because the advantage Cameron had is he had 40... Basically, the Eton MPs kept him in the race in the first couple of ballots, which meant that he had time to be get heard of by people who didn't know him from his school. Oh, God, that sentence is so depressing. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh God, Britain in 2016. I mean, the one one of the good things about the destruction of Boris Johnson and... It there is are the, many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are many, but it means that there was a brief moment when people were talking up the idea that Yvette Cooper might become Labour leader again, which raised the terrifying possibility of not just two, two uh, party leaders from Oxford, but two party leaders from the same Oxford college, which I just would... I mean... I mean, if, which if, one's if, that from Balliol? Is that your college? But yeah, but, but I'm not <laughs> running the country. I'm just saying it might turn out that it was the source of all evil, and we should have you know, burnt it down some time ago. It's entirely possible. But I mean, I I just think occasionally when I do like international radio or whatever, you sometimes reflect on the fact, and you're just like, oh, we sound like a basket case. We sound like a, a we sound like a ridiculous country. Oh, we yeah. know. I always like, think that we when, are um, a ridiculous country. Yeah. When uh, you know that great phrase by Robin Cook about uh, House of Lords reform, saying it, we are the only country, us and Lesotho are the only countries that elect hereditary chieftains to their legislature, and it's really true. In Lesotho, they have an upper chamber that is made up of hereditary chieftains, and so do we. We have <laughs> random old aristocrats who we kind of come in and have an election by eight members to get into the households and then they can vote on our laws it's mad it's just mad i believe you're the only other country that has hereditary that has sorry clerics as part of the upper house is iran (laughs) (laughs) well done britain hooray waves um laurie in the very long term do you think we will get back into the eu Uh, i hope so but I don't think anybody has any idea of what the medium term will hold, never mind the very, very long term. It's um, really too soon for predictions of that kind. I wouldn't want to say anything with any confidence. It's um, whatever the EU looks like in the next 20 years is going to be a question of whether or not we want to join, even if we can. Because surely everybody in Europe hates us right now. And I they think have a, reasonable. They have yeah, reasons reasonable. to do that. 
But I also feel like there might be a tighter Europe that comes out of it because, you know, a, a, a one big non-Euro country is exited. Denmark is, which also mm-hmm. doesn't use the Euro, is, is not kind of moving towards the kind of United States of Europe model either. It's very unhappy about that. Uh, you know, Norway's got its special deal. I wonder if the Euro countries will get tighter and then, you know, there will be a sort of second, uh, you know, a, pro- a proper second level of a membership. sort of associate membership. I don't know. Stephen, what do you think? Do you think we'll go back? I think, do you think we'll ever leave? There's another question. There's lots of people keep going, will it actually ever happen? The thing is, I, I think, yeah, what what might happen actually is you can you can see a situation in which... I mean, the slightly unnerving thing is we're now basically going to have a situation which after after however many million people have voted, 15,000 or however many Tory members it is now, but it's not very many, mm-hmm. will basically decide which version of Brexit of the many versions that vote leave kind of through everyone because they kind of like, oh, here's a menu. And then basically, well, after millions of people have picked from, have said, oh, we quite like this menu, yeah, a handful of people will go, actually, I want the we, fish. we wanted the fish. And you can see how what might happen is a situation in which, you know, maybe Labour unearths a charismatic politician who can unite the whole of the Labour Party, who is pro a second referendum. This person having the ability to feed the 5,000 with only five loads and fish is obviously optional. Um, King Arthur coming yeah, back to yeah, say, King basically. Arthur, yeah, I mean, basically, a mythical politician who there's been little evidence of there being in any part of the PLP could arise. And then they could... Yeah, because I think I think the moment for a second referendum is when we know what the out deal looks like, because yeah. it will be so far from what we were promised. And I think a referendum where you go stay in or have this deal is not, I think, ignoring um, the notice to quit. It's going, look, yeah. here's what you've asked us to do. Here's what we've got. Are you happy with it? Yes, no. And then hopefully, and this is very optimistic, but hopefully, even if we then picked out the economic consequences might not be quite as politically destructive because mm-hmm. people would have seen the option as opposed to this situation in which, yeah, basically... We don't know what we voted for. We have for. no we idea what, for sort of kind what of leave looks like. Collage. I'm going to ask myself a question now. So, Helen, did Jeremy Corbyn let the Labour Party down by not campaigning hard enough for Remain? I think this is something that keeps kind of coming up. This is actually the kind of core of the disagreement between Corbyn's supporters and the PLP. The thing that I think, and I'm pretty sure you've said this, Stephen, on social media, is that Corbyn's Euroscepticism is, is not a secret. Like this, I, I went back and I read, we uh, we sent Barbara Speed to interview him when he first stood, before we even knew whether or not he got on the ballot, actually. And he talked about the fact that he wouldn't automatically support Remain, depending, he would be very much depending on what Cameron got. Now, if that's your honest position, Cameron got chop all right so really you should you should campaign for out and he expressed that as part of a wider skepticism with nato which we don't even talk about his his long-standing history mm. of, uh, of, of of worries about american power um so really yeah there was an overwhelming mandate from the membership if you want to say it, that for a leave campaign from the from the very top of labor uh and actually i you know anyone expressing surprise about corbyn's unenthusiasm for remain doesn't seem to have really taken a good hard look at him before they elected him. So that's that one dealt with, I think. Um, ba, 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 ba. Uh, ooh, um, ooh, uh, ooh. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Uh, are we going to talk about regrexit? But I think that we kind of covered that, really, didn't we? Yeah. About the idea that Lib Dems are now offering to campaign on a, on a going back in. Um, David Lammy has has campaigned for a second referendum. Are there any other MPs, Stephen? Uh, Daniel Zeichner. Uh, the uh, Labour MP for Cambridge, um, 
my guess is is MPs for university towns mm. will, regardless of where their own parties end up, will probably decide that that's what they're going to be for. Because I mean, it, it, it is bad, bad news for for Britain's universities. The electorates in basically every university town. So not somewhere like Hull where you have a city and then you actually do have a, a university, mm. but where, where the university is the main employer, those are basically all you know landslides for Remain. A lot of people who are facing uncertain job futures, it just feels to me unlikely that you could get elected out of Oxford, Cambridge, uh, Bristol, uh, whichever seat it was which, which encompasses Warwick, mm. yeah. without having a fairly robust position on this being a disaster. I mean, it's just like no one's ever going to get elected out of a you know a mining town on a position that Thatcherism was great. Um, <laughs> Laurie, I wanted just to, uh, to finish. I wanted to ask you from your position uh, on the left, what do you want from the Labour Party now? Like, given we are where we are with the M- so many MPs having declared a lack of confidence in Jeremy Corbyn. I would like them to get their act together. You know, I, I was I was just reading the news again this morning and thinking, it reminds me of, you know, when, when your friend is having a panic attack over a decision, right? And... You get to us to witness. Is is it going to be this one? Is it going to be this? What are we going to do? And you know, there's a there's total meltdown. And at the end of the day, no decision is always worse than one of two not very good decisions. I just want them to make a decision and stick to it and all get behind it. If they all want to get behind Corbyn, fantastic. If they want to find someone else and all get behind that person, I would be almost as happy. You know, I think it's I think either of those would be much better options than what we've got now, which is Labour eating itself and seemingly not really paying much attention to what's going on outside its own internal meltdown. And that's that's how the Labour Party is letting the country down right now. Here's something I wanted to ask Owen Jones and I didn't get around to this morning. Also, I thought we were firing questions him on Twitter is probably not a kind thing to do to him right now. If the Labour Party split into a, a Corbyn-led faction and a more centrist oh, one, God, a sort of is it? I'm going to say Podemos and Pasok's in in Greece and is very much kind of yeah, not quite same. a dead parrot, but it's certainly looking poorly. Uh, it, it's the POSE or oh, yeah. you know an SBT, SPD and a Delinka. Yeah. So which which one do you end up voting for? Oh God. I have no idea, Helen. Should you go back to the Lib Dems? Oh, no, God! (laughs) Are there any Lib Dems left? I thought there were, like, four of them. Well, they've got... They had a big surge in membership as a result of, as you say, having one position that is, you know, that everybody everybody in their party believes in. Tim Farron turns out to be a fantastic spokesperson for all of this. Well, I think he has the advantage of having a... a, This is the advantage of having a minority party. Maybe this is where politics is is going, is that you can't hold together these big electoral coalitions with people, you know, with wildly diverging opinions on things that are now very salient. And the Lib Dems are in the luxurious position of of not having to hold together that kind of big coalition. I just feel like a vote for either one of those notional sides would be supporting, the, kind of enabling the left in its ongoing split. 
God, you know, if, if our reaction to everything is to split, it's like a de deconstructing Terminator. <laughs> you know, Terminators, when they're under massive attack, they split, split up into all their constituent but parts. But that's a good, I mean, that's a good weaker. thing for, yeah, but they survive, <laughs> don't they? Oh, well, okay, yeah. Oh, I mean, my God, yeah, I, I just, could, can I join the SNP, please? It turns out my granddad was Scottish. We never knew this, but it, this is now I think the Earth. SNP is far too right-wing for you. I think the yeah. SNP's actual policy platforms are, this is the thing I find fascinating, is, being, is people sort of kind of going, well, well the SNP, great left-wingers, and you go, well, actually, they're kind of quite a pragmatic centre-left government, actually. Well, this is the thing. I've never really felt that a vote that you know that support for a mainstream political party was where massive social change was going to come from. The exercise of a vote at the ballot box is about the least worst option every time, and that's okay. You know, it's, I'm, I'm I still go out to vote because I think it's an important part of my civic duty personally to go and pick the least worst option and stop things getting worse. You know. A, but there's quicker. nothing wrong with that. I mean, Ian Leslie wrote a great blog for us about, I can't remember, it was about Corbyn and Trident, it's about the Nirvana fallacy, about the mm -hmm. idea that you constantly compare every politician to you know, to perfection, yeah. essentially, rather than, which always means that everybody lets you down forever. And actually, we'd be well, much I better... the Nirvana fallacy wasn't Kurt Cobain, wasn't killed by the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was that uh, Jetfield can't melt Corbyn's leadership uh, yeah but but this idea that actually you know you look at and I think that was genuinely why a lot of people voted for, for Jeremy Corbyn they looked at all those candidates and they thought don't fancy any of the other ones that guy but yeah. had he been up against someone different then they might not have gone for him you know people are very um, rational I guess about their voting decisions like yeah, that it's, and I'm not going to wait around for. I think there's, there's a tendency on part of the left to say oh well the, the perfect candidate isn't there I'm not going to go out to vote and I, I do understand that I think it's people's right to not vote if they want because you know they're dissatisfied with the whole thing and you know sod the lot but I vote not because I'm, a, I'm massively supporting any of the you know main parties that are that are in play right now but because I think it's it, it's a part of the process I've never believed that politics begins and ends at the ballot box um, but I think given that you've got to be pragmatic but also if you don't vote, vote some other buggers will exactly and they'll exactly. probably have terrible opinions and you've got to <laughs> you've got to counterweight that um Stephen is there anything that we haven't covered that we should talk about re-Brexit are we really not going to ask answer the question about the EEA and its impact okay, on yeah, yeah, rural... Okay. I've mugged up on right, this. Okay, you okay. sent me the question. Okay, very keen. I have an opinion what on it. What are the downsides <laughs> of the EEA, which is this sort of Norway-style membership of the single market, accepting free movement of people? What are the downsides of that deal for UK agriculture? Well, so the, the difficulty is, is if you're in the EEA, you have to accept a lot of rules for, mm -hmm. for trade without setting them. But you, crucially, don't get that much money back out. So... If you are a farmer, you potentially, depending on what things you end up opting in and out of, have a situation in which you have to make sure that your, you know, beef is full of is, is not full of antibiotics. Which I mean, obviously, for the avoidance of doubt, I am intensely relaxed about my beef not having antibiotics in it. Uh, you know, on the whole, I'm in favour of my meat not having weird things in it. Uh, but you don't get money from the common agricultural policy and i mean the interesting thing is whether or not governments i mean my assumption is that the government will have to find that missing money from somewhere because people aren't going to start paying eight quid for mm. a potato but the weird thing is is that farmers who if you look at where the votes for leave came from do do seem to have gone fairly heavily for out 
are in a situation where whatever happens, they are going to face some re really big difficulties. The advantage of the EA, though, is that they would still be able to take advantage of free movement of labour, which for seasonal work, and yeah, particularly in fruit farms, is a big, big, big deal. Yeah, I think that's something that we kind of need to keep coming back to, because there are a couple of regions of Britain that are heavily dependent on EU money, Cornwall being mm. one of them, North Wales being another one of them. Um, and they're, you know, they are, have said, we're still going to get that money right, and that's yeah. entirely up for debate at the moment. And as we said before in previous podcasts, Northern Ireland is also you know, a, a part of the UK in which you know, the national security is, is at risk by the idea of reinstituting a land border. Laurie, have you got any uh, thoughts about agriculture? Well, yes, I did some reading on this. Okay. And it's... Uh... So one of the things about the, the CAP seems to be that, what well, I had no idea, even at the middle of the campaign, that so much of the, of the EU budget went to agricultural subsidies and that so much of these subsidies were going not to individual farmers, but, you know, giant landowners. Paul Dacre um, gets uh, 450000 Is it from just owning basically so, empty tracts of land in Scotland? Yeah, and in that's the state. kind of thing that maybe if, we were to renegotiate... I think Osborne's father gets a lot of money for his wind farms as yeah. well. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah. It is Osborne's father, yeah. But, you know, but wind farms are amazing. Yeah, wind I farms really are really like good. Wind. We're pro oh, yeah, I don't understand the people who think they're ugly. They're lovely. Yeah, and you just look at them and you just believe in a better tomorrow when you see a wind farm. It's just... You know, the human invention and 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 craft and and clean energy and you can pretend you're this is probably the weirdest thing I've said on the podcast. Yeah. No, I know, I know, I, I don't understand them either. I guess if you live near them and they make a lot of noise, but then when people complain about that, I always think, have you tried living in London? Like yeah. it's really <laughs> people are always yapping outside my window all hours of the night. Um, Laurie, thank you so much for joining us for a special Brexity um podcast. Hopefully, you'll come back quite soon. Um, as the unfolding chaos sucks more of us into oh, its gaping more. Um, but for Just now, check and see if I'm on the shadow cabinet yet. You might be so. by the time you can get pulled if I out. Am, I may not have very much time to be pulled out podcast. for DCMS. That's my oh advice. My <laughs> Thanks, Laurie. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.